I've already read the first few verses for you. Uh, so we have this imagery of a great angel grabs the devil by the scruff of the neck, binds him in a chain. Now he's a spirit being, so obviously that's not literal. But it, it captures for us some phenomenon that's going on in the spirit world and puts him in a, a bottomless pit. Now the bottomless pit is not something we're unfamiliar with. It's known as the abyss. We've already read about it in Revelation chapter 9 and Revelation chapter 11. Now in Revelation 9 and Revelation 11, the devil or demons are sort of, or the locust demons are going in and out of it. It, it seems, based upon the language, that they have, they have access to it. They're not afraid of it. They're, they're in and they're out. It's like their abode. It's their, their clubhouse. But this event is unique in that now the devil is locked in it. He cannot get out. He is localized and he is no longer, it very specifically says, he's bound for a thousand years. Listen to the language. Through a minute, shut him in it, sealed it over him, very emphatic language, so that he may not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are over. So that tips us off that there's going to be one, at least one more act of deception by the devil, but it's not going to be for a thousand years. That deception will be brief, however, because it says it would just be for a little while. Now he is variously named, God is variously named. He is variously named. But he is named with words like dragon, a mythological beast of destruction, ancient serpent. Obviously, your mind goes back to Genesis 3, the serpent in the tree, deceiving Adam and Eve. The devil, this is the word diabolus, from which we get the word diabolical. It means deceiver or conniver or swindler. And Satan he is captured. He is no longer able to deceive human beings or responsible for human deception. This is very important for us to understand and note in the text. Then he's released very briefly, and that will be recorded in uh, chapter uh, 20, verse 7 and following. But now, okay, he's out of the way, so let's then look at chapter or verses 4 to 6 and see what, what else is going to take place. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. And also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, for the word of God, so martyrs again, those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or hand. So presumably then, these were people that were alive when the beast, Antichrist, man of lawlessness, false prophet were alive and well. Presumably this is not referring to people that lived before them but people had come through the tribulation that they'd brought about. They came to life. So that means they, they were dead. Some of them were martyred and reigned with Christ for a thousand years with him. Then it says the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So we got to think about who are the rest. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Not only blessed, but holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So 
there's two resurrections clearly in view here. Minimally, one for martyrs slash those who did not receive the mark of the beast. And the other for what the text says are the rest of the dead. The rest of the dead. So who then are part of the second category? Well, there's a few possibilities. The first is that for an amillennialist, an amillennialist is a person that erases this and makes tribulation just the general part of the ethos of our lives and takes the millennium and extends it right back to the time of Christ and makes it non-literal. Okay? For a person of that persuasion, they, I mean, they, don't, they don't believe in these future events in the literal way that I've described them. So they would then see the first resurrection as a resurrection of the soul only and the second as a resurrection of the body. So they would have to look at the, the, two res- the first and the second resurrection. One is a, when you die, your soul is resurrected in a sense to God. And the second resurrection at the end of the figurative thousand years is when your body is resurrected from the grave. Another alternative among millennialists is that the first resurrection is for martyrs and those who have not received the mark of the beast, so basically people that were martyred during the tribulation. And so believers that were martyred or severely persecuted. And the second was for all other believers who were not martyred but died of natural causes or whatnot. And the unjust. The third view is uh, the view that, that I hold to. And that is that the uh, first refers to the resurrection of all of the just. So all believers throughout all of time who have died up to that point, martyrs, those who have not received the mark of the beast, the church triumphant throughout history, Israeli believers back to the time of you know, Adam. And so this would be the resurrection of the just. You can reference Luke 14, 14, talks about the resurrection of the just. And th- these are the people, the reason why I, I hold to this view is because it makes sense to me when it says over the second death has no power. So that implies by nature that the second group resurrected are somehow under the power of death and therefore hell. And um, so you could, you could reference uh, verse 6 there, also a stress on the word holy. And the second resurrection is the resurrection only and exclusively of the unjust for damnation. So the, all believers who have died in Christ, in God, will be part of the first resurrection. All unbelievers will be part of the second resurrection. And so we have the whole people of God throughout time, Jews and Gentiles, martyrs and non-martyrs, those who have experienced small T tribulation, those who have experienced capital T tribulation, together during the millennium on earth. So the vision here is that 
there's going to be a period of time in the future within which God is going to bring all the believers together and they're going to rule with him over the earth. We'll give, you some reason, we'll give you some more descriptions of what that rule and what that period of time will be like momentarily. But I first want to park a little bit more on the number 1,000. Because a lot of people are like, why 1,000? Uh, now, I'm actually okay with seeing the uh, number 1,000 as a figurative number, as long as it's not too figurative. Like if the millennium is a, a lengthy period of time that isn't being run by our clock, I don't really care if it's 1,010 years or 750 years. It's a lengthy period of time. I'm not all hung up on the number because the book of Revelation doesn't allow me to be too dogmatic with numbers. We've already learned that. I mean, 7 and 12, 666, they're not all literal numbers. So it, it allows us within the context of the literature to be flexible on the number. But what I would not be prepared to do is to spiritualize it into the church age. I think it is a, a substantial, lengthy period of time in the future. So a lot of people then have, have asked well, or made suggestions as to why 1,000. Well, the first is fascinating and fanciful, um, maybe the reason, but uh, we're going to need to go back to Genesis chapter 5, verse 5. And here we have the lifespan of uh, several people. We have Adam fathering Seth. Seth lived 800 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Now, what you're going to see in the early chapters of Revelation is lifespans that are coming pretty close to a millennium. Nobody quite gets to 1,000. I think the highest is like... 969? Is, is it 969? But we're getting pretty close to 1,000. So uh, if the millennium is sort of a back to Eden kind of state, an opportunity for God to bring us back to a time and, and start to experience some of what life should have been like, and I know it's still post-fall, the number fits in there, but for the purpose of our discussion, some people have found it fascinating that Adam died at uh, 930 which is exactly 70 years shy of 1,000, which is the difference between... Uh, 70, of course, is the, the, the three score and 10, which God has given to mankind to live. And Adam dies 70 years shy of 1,000. Now, um, in Psalm 90, verse 4, and in Second. Peter 3.8, it says a day to the Lord is like a thousand years. And so some have suggested that um, uh, we need to refer to Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. And this is God's warning to Adam, where he says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for, listen to the language, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, he didn't. He lived for like 930 years. But the curse is that he was to die that day. 
So some have suggested that because the date of a Lord is a thousand years and Adam dies 70 years before a thousand, that he actually did die in a day calculated by God's timetable. So God took his life uh, earlier. And so Christ then is set up as the, the second Adam and he gets the full 1,000 on earth. So not only does he fulfill the role of the second Adam by being the spiritual father of us all, by taking into his body uh, all of our death, all of our sin and dying for us, but he also fulfills the life of Adam, becomes the second Adam for us by living a full 1,000 years in a, a godly state of reigning on God, God the Father's behalf for the full 1,000. So, fanciful view, but uh, historically that's one that has been presented. So Jesus then, by reigning a 1,000 years, is presented to us as the second Adam that overcomes the full curse of the first by living a full day as reckoned by God himself. A second view is that the seven-day week is going to be reflected in 7,000 years of human history. That the world will last for 7,000 years. And after 6,000 years of history, God will rest and rule for 1,000 years, which is one out of seven, which is the equivalent of one day out of seven. And so the millennium, in a sense, will function as an extended Sabbath millennium. Sabbath-millennial period of time. Uh, much more simplistically has a couple other suggestions is that the, the number 1,000, whether it's to the day 1,000 or there and abouts, is a symbolic number that is meant to symbolize the perfect lifespan because it's more or less in line with the lifespans of the pre-flood people. And others have suggested that the number 1,000, because it's big and round, uh, is symbolic of a perfect amount of time and really is to be taken as nothing more than that. Uh, all in all, the literalness of the number is not as important as its purpose. So we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at the purpose of the millennium. And in order to do this, we have to go to our Old Testament. And we have to look at some of the words of the prophets. Now, we don't have time to you know, extensively exegete all these passages, but in the pro prophetic books, you can just take my word for it, that when they pointed into the future, they often would try to create an understanding or an image in the minds of their readership as to what they could expect in the world to come. Sometimes that was introduced with language like, you know, the day of the Lord. Or uh, they wouldn't say, you know, the millennium, they wouldn't use New Testament language like that, but they would speak of the day of the Lord or in the future, and they would describe life on earth that clearly the Jewish people have never experienced up till now, unless, you're, unless you take it really, really symbolically and figuratively. Some of the language of the prophets, if you even apply, you know, 50% literality to it, you'd have to admit that this, these, these things have not yet taken place in this world. And so they must yet be future. So many of the writers talk that way. Um, anyway, we'll just, uh, we'll just read a few here. So Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. 
And it shall come to pass in the latter days. Now, latter from the perspective of a 7th century writer like Isaiah could be, you know, 100 years later. But the descriptions he gives here, I don't think we've seen it yet, so it's probably yet future. And it shall come to pass in the latter day that on the mountain of the house of the Lord, where's that? Jerusalem, the holy hill, shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and and listen to this, and all the nations shall flow into it. Now, there's been times there's been a lot of Gentiles uh, in Israel, but never all the nations. I mean, I'm pretty sure uh, Israel has never been visited by people from, you know, Papua New Guinea, circa the time of the New Testament. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the house, to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many people and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Okay, that has not yet happened, clearly. That must be taken as eschatological or reinterpreted in extremely non-literal ways because there's never been a time when all nations have gone to worship in, in Jerusalem and when all nations have lived at peace with one another, even taking weapons of war and making them into weapons for agricultural purposes. So I take that as millennial. Then we're going to go to Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah 14, verses uh, 8 to 21. On that day, by the way, let's just back up to verse 6. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, there sh and, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at the evening time there shall be light. So that sounds a lot like the cosmological phenomenon that are taking place in Revelation. On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. They will continue in summer as in, as in winter. The Lord shall be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord shall be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to uh, Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate to the tower of Hananel to the king's wine press, and it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. So right there, that has to be, uh, you know, I mean, it has to be after the Crusades, because there was destruction in Jerusalem then. Jerusalem shall dwell in security, and uh, this shall be the plaque with which the Lord shall strike all the people with weight and the wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets. Their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, a great panic of the Lord will fall upon them so that each will seize the hand of another. The hand of one will be raised against the hand of another. Uh, even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. The wealth of all surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver garments, and great abundance. And a plague like this shall fall on the horses, the mules, and so forth and so on. Again, sounds revelation-like. And uh, 
then go down to verse uh, 20 for the sake of time. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord, and the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as bowls before the altar, and every pot in Jerusalem and uh, Ju Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of it and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them, and there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. And then go back to Ezekiel chapter 34. Giving you an opportunity to find all these books you probably don't read very often. Okay, Ezekiel 34, verses 17 to 24. So there's this reference to judging between the sheep and the goats and the rams. Um, okay, I'm going to go down to verse 21. Behold, you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with their, your horns till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock. Ezekiel 34. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. So right now, well, at least up till 1948, Israel was scattered. We all know that. That's a historical fact. I will... Uh, they will no longer be prey. I will judge between the sheep and sheep. And I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I am the Lord I have spoken. Obviously, he's not referring to literal David because David had been dead a couple hundred years by now. But Jesus is clearly in view here because he is the messianic ruler in the line of David. Um, Okay, I'm just going to give you one more for the sake of time. We're going to go to Micah, chapter 4. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Okay, Micah 4, verses 1 to 5. Latter-day language. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest mountain shall be lifted above all the hills, a people will flow into it, many nations shall come. Now this sounds an awful lot like Isaiah, doesn't it? That he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide for strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall... They learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall t make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. These are, in all likelihood, millennial passages, referring to a future day which has not yet come. So those that do not believe in a literal millennium have to take these and spiritualize them and stretch them and twist them to try to fit them into the church age and try to find little events where, well, there might be a little period of time where this was the case or well, there was this 10 or 20 or 30 or 100 year period where they had peace. But this language, I think, is too strong to be considered 
you know, a reference to little bits and pieces of time throughout the church age where Jerusalem has experienced this kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm going with the future view on these. And uh, so we find ourselves in, in this discussion of life in the millennium. And uh, what will this be like? Well, there's a few different views. Obviously, there's going to be peace. There's going to be multiple nations there. There's going to be those that come out of the tribulation uh, into the millennial kingdom, both converted Jews and converted Gentiles that have come to faith during the tribulation period and didn't have their heads cut off. So we have those people coming in and those people will continue to have babies. There will be babies born during the millennial period. And there will also be those that have died in Christ prior to this, who now already have their glorified bodies, who will be reigning with Christ in Jerusalem. So there will be two groups of people. There will be those that have glorified bodies who have died prior and are now reigning with Christ in Jerusalem. And there will be those that have not yet died that have lived through uh, the great tribulation. And during this period of time, God's focus... Not his exclusive focus, but his key focus is going to be on the Israelites, where he will fulfill his promises and his plans to them. Well, he will fulfill in, in, in the fullest possible sense the promises that he made to Abraham and the promises that he made to Abraham's offspring. And then by extension, Gentile, Gentiles during that period of time will also benefit by, by extension and by proxy from God's blessings upon uh, Israel. Now, during that period of time, it appears that some will continue to rebel and be led away even in the absence of demonic influence. That as people are born and as people live during the millennial reign of Christ, it will be a period of, uh, it will be an idyllic period it will be uh, a period unlike any other, this side of the fall of mankind in Genesis chapter 3. It will be an awesome experience. There will be no war, the Bible says. There will be peace. Animals will be vegetarians. They will not eat each other. The lion will lay down with the lamb. In some senses, it'll be a return to Eden. But during that period of time, there also will be people that are born, presumably people that die, and there's debate as to whether the, the people that died during that period of time who are saved will automatically receive glorified bodies or need to wait till the end of the, the millennium. We don't ultimately know. Uh, but during that period of time, here are some things that are, that are going to happen. Uh, take you to um, Ezekiel 37. And there's, there's many things we could talk about, so I'm just being very selective. Ezekiel 37, verses 25 to 26. So, uh, my servant David shall rule as king over them. They shall live in of one shepherd. They shall walk on my rules, be careful to obey my statutes. So there's going to be an overall fixation upon the rule of Christ. They shall dwell on the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers live. Very specific. It's very specific language. They're going to be in the land that was given to Jacob. 
they and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David my servant shall be their prince forever. So it would appear, children, children's children, that there's going to be those that are born during the tribulation. Uh, another interesting reference to lifespans during the tribulation is found in uh, Isaiah, or sorry, during the millennium, is found in Isaiah 65, verse 20. Um, now, it, it, admittedly, this might refer to the events past the millennium during the, the advent of the new heavens and the new earth. But uh, it says, No more shall there be in it an infant who dies but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die, the young man shall die a hundred years old. And the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Well, it's probably not referring to the literal new heavens, the new earth, but during the millennial period, there will still be believers and unbelievers being birthed or living during that period of time. But the, the age the, the, the age spans are going to be drastically stretched out, probably you know, more or less back to the way things were between the fall of mankind uh, into sin and and the flood. And uh, I will give you one more. We'll go to Isaiah chapter 11. Verses 6 to 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. So this is also reminiscent of God's original intention, you might say, and that during the millennial period or during this age to come, animals will be herbivores. Now, just one other point. Um, many people believe in, in the, uh, the, the biblical text seems to suggest that there will be a, a renewal of a sacrificial system during the uh, millennial period. But the sacrificial system that is renewed is not because Christ's atonement is no longer sufficient. It'll be a memorial, similar to our celebration of the communion, of communion where we celebrate the death, the, the, the shed blood and, bo and the offered body of Christ. Uh, the sacrificial system that is, seems to be referred to in some of the prophetic pronouncements of this future period of time is probably for the purpose of reminding and serving as a memorial of God's blessings, uh, God's atonement, etc. Not because the atonement of Christ will be null and void, but as a as a memorial. So that's a, a few descriptions of life in the millennium. You can read these passages for yourselves and study them out if you'd like at home, and it'll give you a little more detail as to life during the millennium. And then we have Satan's ultimate defeat. So as we read about earlier, he's going to be released for a little while. So the thousand years end in verse 7. Satan's released from his prison, and he's going to come out to deceive the nations who are at the four corners of the earth. Well, who are these nations? Well, during the tribulation period, or during the millennial period, there are Jews and Gentiles. There are still nations, in a sense, because, I mean, the world population has been drastically reduced 
through the pouring out of the, the, the bowls of judgment earlier early in Revelation. But Jews and Gentiles, people of different ethnicities, will be during the millennium. The ones that are glorified will not be part of this battle because they're clearly in Christ. But the ones that are not yet glorified will produce children and some of them will wander. And in a sense, national groups will still be identified, although they, were, they will all look to Christ. But then Satan is going to deceive them. There's going to be a temporary uprising. He refers to this as Gog and Magog, which probably doesn't mean it's literally going to be in that location, but Gog, evil king, Magog, his evil empire. So he extracts the language from a historical figure and applies it to this futuristic battle, gathers them for battle, and there's a lot of them. It says their numbers like the sand of the sea. So they march up over the broad plain of the earth. They surround the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Well, in the millennial vision, it's the, it's the city of, of God, Jerusalem, where Christ has been reigning now for a thousand years. So Satan has this final desire to try to attack, but he loses. Fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. It's very quick. Just fire comes down. It doesn't even say they're going to duke it out for a couple of weeks or you know, have a few skirmishes. Just the fire comes down and bzz, they're done. And then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. Well, who, who had already been thrown into there? We're reminded where the beast and false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So there again, we have eternal conscious torment attached to the depictions of the lake of fire. Not annihilationism, but eternal conscious torment. So Satan is released. He continues to wage war against God. By the way, the background to the Gog and Magog account is Ezekiel 38.2, if you want to look that up. And it represents this evil battle of Revelation 20. Um, so here we have the devil ultimately defeated, cast into the lake of fire, and then that sets us up for the great white throne judgment. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And I love the language of this text because it really, picturing Christ reigning in Jerusalem with all the nations coming to him is a powerful image, but this one's even more powerful. From his presence, earth and the sky fled away and no place was found for them. It's like they're cowering in a corner, but they can't find one because he's the ruler of everything. And I saw the dead, great and small, great and small has come up time and time again, just referring to all kinds of people, standing before the throne, and then the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the book. So presumably this is an image of God's knowledge of all of their evil deeds. I'm not sure God really keeps a literal book or why he would need to. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. Maybe this is just an image, probably doesn't matter much. But what it does tell us is that God knows everything, every deed that every evildoer has ever committed, he will be called to account for. You can't get away from him even if you've been eaten by fish because the sea gives up the dead. Death and Hades, probably a, referent, a personification here of the grave, cemeteries and the like, give up the dead that were in them. They're judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Death and Hades are then thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Now, the second death, if I recall correctly, is referred to back in what? Uh, verse 6. 
Over such, the second death has no power. Over whom? Those that are blessed and holy in Christ. If anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he's thrown into the lake of fire. So this is the final judgment of the world. Now, if the first resurrection, if the amillennialists are right, or not even necessarily the amillennialists, but if the, if the first resurrection we talked about earlier, remember the first resurrection and the second? If the first resurrection was only the martyrs and those that did not receive the mark of the beast, and the second resurrection is a combination of believers that weren't martyred and the unjust, then the great white throne judgment is a judgment for believers and unbelievers alike. But if the first resurrection is all believers, then this j resurrection to judgment is only, as I believe, for evildoers. And the books are opened, and none of them will find their name in the book of life. They will all be omitted. They will all have a record presented to them of their wrongdoings. And uh, they will be consigned to the lake of fire forever and ever. Now, why are works mentioned? It almost seems like there's a works theology going on here. You know, you didn't measure up to my works. And we, you know, hammer away on grace, faith, you know, the free gift of salvation. Well, very, very simple answer to that. Works are not contrary to faith, and works are not contrary to grace. Works are a true manifestation of the reality of a changed heart or lack thereof, period. <laughs> no works, no changed heart. You want to know if somebody is truly saved, you don't look at their Bible, they wrote in a little date. This is when I prayed the prayer. You look at their life. Well, this, is, this is Galatians 5. This is uh, the whole book of 1 John. If you don't have spiritual fruit, if you don't have a love of God in you, you're not a believer. So it's, this, is not a, this is not advocating some sort of a works-based salvation, but God looks at a person's life. If there's no works, there's no reality. There's no saving reality, bottom line. So I would suggest to you that uh, this great white throne judgment is a judgment for the... Um, the unbelievers and the unbelievers only throughout all of time. So, one final comment. What about us? What about believers? Will we ever give an account to God? Well, there's two passages that you need to be familiar with. The first is Romans 8.1, and you know this one. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. For what the law was powerless to do, Christ did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And the second one is 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all, now 2 Corinthians, Paul writing to Corinth. Corinth is composed of Christians. It's a church. So it's a message. The we is Christians. For we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that each will receive uh, for him in his body the things done, whether they be good or bad. So generally speaking, uh, millennialists speak of two judgments. The one is a judgment of damnation for the unbeliever. The other is a judgment of reward for the believer. So we will be judged, but we'll be judged and rewarded for the things done in the body post-salvation, whether they be good or bad. 
So you may not like it, but there will be degrees of reward based upon the degree to which you've served Christ in this world. Not based upon the duration, but based upon the degree to which you've... So if you're a, a Christian that drags their knuckles and doesn't serve, you get a little tiny crown to throw at Christ's feet. And if you've served Christ well and been faithful, you get a big one. Now, you all throw it back at Christ's feet. It's not a self-exalting thing. But there's a sense in which you'll want to do that. So there is a, um, a uh, sort of carrot that's dangled in front of us to strive to honor Christ because we will be rewarded accordingly for that. And because the, the judgment seat of 2 Corinthians 5.10 is known as the Bema, or in English, Bema seat, if you ever hear someone say the Bema seat judgment, they're referring to the judgment of believers in 2 Corinthians 5.10, distinct from the, the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20. Now, having said that, some people, again, see the great white throne judgment as judgment for believers and unbelievers because they see that the two resurrections that are mentioned have believers in both. But I'm just not sure the language of the text really allows for that. Okay? So... Yeah, well, you know, burning in 500 degrees and burning in 650 degrees <laughs> is probably not that much different. So there, it's probably a moot point in some ways. But because of, because of God's, because of God's um, the, the passage, I'd have to look it up. Speaking of extra heinous sin, for whom is reserved? What is it? The, the darkness of hellfire, something like that forever. It seems to imply that people have committed extra heinous sin. There's like a place reserved in heaven, sort of solitary confinement, so, or in hell, solitary confinement for extra heinous sins. And then, you know, the whole, in the whole of Scripture, there are, and I'm just going to make, make mention of this. Those of you that have heard me preach have heard me say this before, but we have to get away from this false view that all sin is equal. It is absolutely not equal. Okay, molesting a child is far more heinous than stealing a Mars bar from Dollarama. Okay, let's admit it. It's, both of them are sinful, but certain sins take a far greater expression of one's sinful, rebellious, depraved humanity than other sins. And that's why throughout Scripture, there are degrees of punishment for sin. You don't look at the Old Testament and say, you know, the guy that... Uh, the guy who borrows his neighbor's ox and it slips into a hole is stoned, just like the guy that rapes a woman. It's not the same. There's different, there's different punishments attached to different sin because some sin is more heinous than others. It is. Um, the, the Bible doles out different degrees of sin. So in the, in the here and now, there's different levels of punishment and consequence attached to certain sin. But I often hear people say, Sin is sin, it's all the same, there's no difference. That's, that's not true. That's not biblical. It's all damnable, of course. It's all judgeable. It's all sin. But murdering someone, uh, committing homosexual acts, um, you know, committing adultery it are, are in lists in the Bible of damnable sins that exclude a person from the kingdom of God. If those things mark your life, I don't care how many Billy Graham crusades you've walked the aisle at, you are not saved. 
If those things mark your life, you are not a believer. That's, that's Bible. But because all Christians sin, hopefully in lesser ways than those, there are, in all sin, there's opportunities for forgiveness. But the reality is, is that in terms of even consequence and judgment, it's a longer path back from some than others. And so taking that, that general principle in Scripture, that judgment is attached in some way to the degree that a person sins, I don't think it's a stretch to suggest that perhaps there's something like that in heaven or in hell, just like there clearly seems to be something like that in heaven based upon 2 Corinthians 5.10. So that's my view. Any other comments or questions? You guys mentally exhausted yet? <laughs> yeah, Don? Um, I'm getting it that every, all sinners are being thrown into the fire. You know, mm-hmm. How can it get worse than that? Now, our, you know, how yeah. Well, it's true. I also think it's helpful. Now, this is just my mental processing of this. I don't have like a proof text for you. But I also think that if we start, if we understand that God is a giver of life and true life is found in him, not just joy, but true life is found in him. And we look at our whole theology of what it means to be new creatures in Christ and our whole sermon series on union with Christ and how we, we feed off the life of Christ and it's in him that we find our, our meaning and our hope and so forth and so on. The, the, the greatest consequence of sin is eternal separation from God, not heat. The greatest consequence is being in a world where for the first time in your entire existence, there literally will be no God. There will be no sustaining presence. And so in that sense, I think it is helpful to think of hell as a state of perpetual dying, whereas heaven is a state of perpetual living. So it's not that you're alive in hell and just having a really bad time of it, but you're in a state of perpetual death. And that to me, I think, is far more horrifying of an image than heat, which we often emphasize. There's no good, no. So, okay, well, um, We'll see you next week. Next week's our final night, and hopefully we'll be able to get through the final two chapters.